0: Next week, I'm going to share a little bit about The One Project um, and uh, what took place there. But this morning, I got an email that I just wanted to read uh, a comment here um, that somebody had written about their experience at The One Project, and I thought maybe it would be appropriate for us. Throughout college, I've struggled with my identity in the relation to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've struggled with people who spread lies, fear, hatred, and judgment in the name of Jesus and of Ellen White. I've struggled with my identity as a justice-seeking millennial and an empowered woman in a church whose institution does not always appreciate those perspectives. I struggled with the idea of reaching out to others and asking them to be part of a church that has the one hand enriched with my life and on the other hand betrayed both me as a person and my generation as a whole. But this weekend, while attending the Seattle gathering of the One Project, I felt affirmed as a woman, as a millennial, as a Seventh-day Adventist, as a follower of Jesus. I felt affirmed in my choice to remain in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I feel affirmed in my continuing search for truth and justice and closeness with God through Seventh-day Adventism. And I thank God for moments where I'm reminded that Christ's church is inclusive. I thank God for the reminder that I may also be inclusive to those who wish to exclude me. Life isn't about being right so much as about being right with God. My prayer is that I have the strength to follow Christ, lean on Him, He will provide. We need only follow Jesus all. That, for me, kind of captured uh, a lot of sentiments that I received, and uh, next week you'll read in the worship guide a few of those, and we'll share a few reports about what people also who came from Boulder, who went there and experienced themselves. But it is so true, and so fun, and so good, and I'm glad we're here together. So you will need one of these, a worship guide. If you don't have one, Spencer's at the back, and he will hand them out. So if you don't have one, put your hand up because you're gonna need a worship guide. Everybody got a copy? In this worship guide here, oh, I see, I see, that's good. He's got a copy, all right? Did you, did you trade your car, by the way? You were trying to trade your car, I saw so you, like you got the kind like, oh man, and he went up to this other kid and said, come on, man, trade, and he was trading, trading. I just wondered whether you got it. If not, you should go see Auntie Jackie and see if she's got a spare one that she could trade you. But he's got the yellow submarine, so it's all good. He's a Beatles fan, so it'll be okay. But inside here, inside this worship guide is a connect card. And if you don't know what to do with that connect card, you can hand it to me, or you can just put it inside a watering can right there next to the connect card sign there. And that will be important and that'll be part of today. So let us begin. The best ideas, the best ideas that we've ever heard of often come from the most unlikely spaces. Usually somebody's in their basement and they're fiddling with something, and then, boom, a great idea comes together. Somebody's in their garage, and they're putting 500 computers together, and boom, they create something else. Somebody's sitting in a car, and this is a true story, sitting in a car, driving through the rain, thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had something that just moved the water away from the screen, and then created the windscreen wipers? And Ford tried to steal it from them, but they won it in the end. But the great ideas just happened, they just are right there all the time. God made us to be creative. That's the important thing for us to remember today. So the church is full of creative people, and we have the freedom here at the church to be able to try things and fail at them, but try them again because God has made us creative with the ability to try and never to give up trying that kind of stuff. I read, uh, I, I was reading this article in Spectrum the other day, it's an online forum, don't read the comments in Spectrum, those are really depressing. Uh, the articles are excellent, but there's a few psychos who repeat everything inside that forum there. But I was, reading, I was reading through there and they had this article on Des Ford, and if you've never heard of Des Ford, he's not related to the car maker, uh, he, has, uh, he has some kind of ideas about the sanctuary, and I, I've never studied them. So I was reading this and I thought, I should read his book. And as I was reading his book, uh, his little book that he has online for free, I came across this quote at the very beginning that I thought I'd share with you as well. It's a quote from Councils to Writers and Editors, page 35 by Ellen White. She says this, There's no excuse for anyone taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed, that all our expositions of scriptures are without an error, The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for years is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth cannot afford to be fair. If the pillars of our faith will not stand investigation, it's time we knew it. I love that spirit. I love that spirit to say nothing is unquestionable. Nothing is not worth reinvestigating to try and make sure that you understand it. And God says, come, let us reason together. Bring your best questions, and let's discuss them, because together you will learn, and you will grow, and we will constantly grow, and we need to be aware of that. The title of the message there, I don't know if we have, uh, Aaron, if we have a slide uh, that has the tail wags a dog. You've probably heard the the phrase, the tail that wags a dog, and and I've just wondered uh, a lot about this recently, whether our conference and union and divisions and general conference, you know, our structure in the church, whether that's the dog and we, the local church, are the tail, or whether the conferences, unions, divisions, and general conference are the tail and we are the dog. So, who is influencing who? Is it that we are the tail trying to influence the entire strong dog, or is it that the system, which is where I stand, the system, the conference and union and divisions and general conference, is supposed to be the tail, and we are supposed to be the dog. The local church is supposed to be the place where there is strength, and it exists, because without the local church, everything else crumbles, by the way. You realize that? If you guys all disappeared tomorrow and you stop paying your tithe and your offerings, the whole system just disappears instantly. It's based on the local church. But somehow, for some reason, we have become the tail. We try things and we're just wagging the tail like crazy, trying to get the system to think of something that could happen here locally. Instead of us being a strong dog and the system... Seeing the big picture, seeing the global perspective, seeing the, the Colorado perspective is engaging and trying to encourage us as a dog to be in a particular direction. So I want to try and bring us back to being the dog and not the tail anymore. I have four questions for you, and those four questions are inside your guide. Recalibrate questions. Creating vision, how? Creating change, when? Creating metrics, what? And creating churches, why? I was originally planning to spend the time with the elders and go through this, and so I'm going to surprise them instead, um, because we had bad weather. Peter, it's okay. I know you're there. Peter will take me out to the side afterwards, and... Deck me one or two times, but it's okay, we're going to do this. And then we're going to go, after we've shared a few ideas here, and we are going to process this some more as a church. But I want to encourage you to process this as well as a church, because this is going to shape us. So creating vision. How do we create vision? When we look at the word vision, we'll probably go to the text in Proverbs and says the people without vision perish. But in fact, the text in Proverbs uses vision as a restrainer. But when we think of vision, we always think of the future. Well, you know, pastor, what is the vision that you have for the church? Where are you going to take us? Where is the future inside here? But I I don't think vision is the future. I think vision is a dissatisfaction of the present. That's what vision is. Vision is birthed out of a dissatisfaction with the present. It's just not good enough. And something has to change. You get it from visiting your friends in your community. You get it from dialoguing. We get it from evaluations that we do of each other. We get it from papers that we share. All sorts of things because vision is driven from this dissatisfaction. There is a sense of deep urgency inside vision. It's the reason why Jesus, when he walks into the temple, he sees the oppression taking place. He sees that people want to sacrifice and they're not being allowed to sacrifice and so he turns all those tables over. He's dissatisfied with the present and he creates vision for the future. Vision is a lot of resiliency as well. You have to be super strong to enjoy vision. You know when Noah preached for 120 years saying the flood's going to come, it's going to rain. I'm pretty sure a lot of people said, I don't really see it inside here. But through those deaf ears, through the resiliency that he had, he was able to say, I'm dissatisfied with this. It's going to come, the flood will appear. Moses himself thought, you know, he went out there and he, he killed the guy and he thought maybe if I do this and I'll take the kingdom by force in this particular way. And God said, that's not the way. And he went out into the wilderness and lived looking after sheep for 40 years, trying to understand what the vision is that God had given him, and he created that dissatisfaction that he had in his life, and he created that humility that he was supposed to live. David, and you remember this when we were doing the series of Kings, when, when Jezebel, with her hand, wrote a note. It was significant, right? David himself, he wrote a note. Do you remember that? He wrote a note, he gave it to Uriah and said, deliver your death sentence to Joab, not knowing it. So when they write these notes, They go through this terrible faction. Jezebel, of course, didn't repent. David repented through the humility, through the rehab, through the reconciliation. He came out a different person. So that today, we don't say that we want to be of the line of Solomon. We want to be of the line of David, even though some would prefer that. Elijah, as we've been looking at for the last few weeks as well, you'll remember that uh, he went to the mountain, Jezebel confronted him, and he whimpers away. And through that quiet time, through that desperate time, that hard time, he comes out knowing that vision is real for him. Vision is really hungry. You have to be hungry for something. You have to be saying, I've got to do something different. And God gives you that from dissatisfaction. If you're coming along to church every single week and thinking everything's fine, you, my friends, are lying to yourselves because church is not fine. Oh my goodness. The amount of mistakes we do every day, it's unbelievable. But this is it. It's disposed to be dissatisfaction. So you say, I'm going to step up, and I'm going to get involved in this in some kind of shape or form. We've got to be hungry for God. God's not looking anyway for heroes. God is really looking for shepherds. And we've pushed this hero metaphor so far that we've taken leaders and placed them on pedestals and left them here as our single leader is going to take us all the way through. And God's saying, no, I'm looking for shepherds. I'm looking for community that looks after each other. We're looking for God to say to us, after all, that God has the answers. Because if we knew the future, we would be God. God has the answers. Our job is to trust God. So, question number two. Create change. When? When do we create change? And I have shared this metaphor with you before, uh, the metaphor of how you make wine. I just want to make sure that nobody's tweeting this right now, uh, suggesting, I'm going to do a little side note, I'm not suggesting you should drink alcohol, I'm not suggesting you should go make a wine now. It is a metaphor. Okay? Remember, metaphor. That's a great word. I could say it for hours. Metaphor. Metaphor means that it's not real. Just an example. So when you're making wine, apparently, you take the juice, you take the grapes, you smash them, and they put them in the bottle. And you know as they smash them and put them in the bottle, they have to let them settle. And they let them settle. And as they settle, the sediment goes down to the bottom. And when it's all settled, then you agitate it and you pour it and the, wine, the pure wine goes off, and a little bit of sediment follows through, and you allow that to go through, and then you let it settle. And you keep on doing this process over and over and over again until you have the finest wine, apparently, afterwards. See how I had to throw this in? It's so careful. Otherwise, we'd have to call another business meeting next week and say, no, pastor's planning to introduce wine into communion again. I tell you, there are rumors. So, this metaphor is to illustrate, basically, that when things are calm, you need to stir it up a little bit to be able to make it purer. So when the church starts to get comfortable, when we start to get comfortable with each other, when we start to get into a routine of just going to committee after committee and planning this and planning that and not moving anything, when we start to become satisfied with ourselves and with our church, then we have to shake it up a little bit because it's important for us to purify and to try something different. It's the same, you know, from conception to birth. I mean, you think about it from this size, microscopic, all the way through to the baby being born, huge change taking place. And then that little baby comes out and you think, oh my goodness, it's a monster. It's going to grow. That's what they're going to do. And the baby grows, and you love it, and then, like, it's taller than you, and it's just flying through the air like some kind of nemesis just outside there. It just grows and changes. And then they decide that they want to date, and they want to go out, and they want to get married, and they change even more, and it's fantastic. And then you get married, and here's the funny thing. You get married, and everybody says, you know, when when I sit down with couples and, and they're dissatisfied with their marriage, often they'll just say, If only he or she was just like they were, you know? And some counselors will even say, remember, go back and remember the days when you met. Plan on remembering those days. And you're thinking, my memory can't handle it. I can't remember what it was like. And you're trying to bring them back to a space instead of recognizing we all change. There's a reason why the vows, at least in England, say for better or for worse. It's not just health, it's for change. Change happens. We as people grow up. Believe me, if I was like the age that I am married to Becky, the age that she was then, it would be really weird. It would. If Becky was the age she is right now, but she's older than me. And, and it's all right. It's all right. She doesn't look older than me, but I can say that. So she's older than me. And if I was the age that I was, it'd be weird. It could be kind of fun, but weird. So the thing is this. God is saying to us that we're supposed to expect change. And if you embrace that kind of change in your marriage, you embrace that actually change is standard operating procedure of your life. So, the question often people will ask then, if we have so much change in church, if we're supposed to do this, why do we have the church manual? You're thinking... What's the church manual? Well, for those of you who don't know, it's the dummy's guide to church. That's what it is. It should be covered in yellow and black text. It should really look like that. You should be able to go to Borders. No, Borders is closed down now. Barnes and Noble. (laughs) I still think of Borders, because lots of fond memories there. You should be able to go buy it, but this is the thing. There are moments when I need to go to the church manual and I will say, ah, that's a tricky situation. Let me go to the church manual and get some advice, but in truth, As the church grows, as the dog grows, as the dog understands what its role is, it will need the manual less and less. Some churches don't understand this because they think to themselves, we have to follow everything in the church manual, every single thing inside there. I once went to this church, uh, my wife and I, and I went to preach this church. So we were two people. We turned up. The sanctuary could fit 600 people. And I walked into this church, and we made the total population of that church four. So there were two people in the church plus my wife and I. So I said to them, hey, you know, who are you? And the person introduced himself. They had like every office in the church manual was theirs. They just split up the entire church between the two of them. And then I said, you know, maybe we could just sit down here, like pull two of the chairs in the front and sit down together and do church. Oh no, pastor, that's the pulpit. So I climb up this this pulpit. And I look down to the church, and I, I'm preaching to the three people in the church, and when we're going to do the hymn, the lady gets up, and she runs to the organ, and she plays it like there's 600 people in the church. The whole ground is trembling. It's fantastic, because for them, you have to do church one particular way, and you cannot change it. It was written. There are order of services inside here. There are things to be done. When we have our nominating committee which is coming up, which by the way is the best committee in the world. I know everybody's vying to be on the nominating committee. At night you're dreaming, please pick me. And so the nominating committee is gonna take place this fall. Notice how I said fall, I could have said autumn, but I have learned my ways. And so this fall we're gonna have the nominating committee. People are gonna discuss leaders. Do we select every single leader that the church manual suggests? No, we look at our church, we look at what we need And we create leadership for the circumstances that we're in, because we are the dog. We are the ones that influence the changes that take place. So that's what we do with the church manual. Change is really huge. When you come to Christ, it's not just because somebody did like a four-week series and you decided, because believe me, I, I don't convert people. You don't convert people. The Holy Spirit converts people. But we call them these crazy terms. You know what we call them? We call them, uh, well, we don't call them here, but people call them reaping exercises. Isn't that brilliant? Would you like to be reaped? You're like, no, not me. That's weird. But that's what we call them. We call them reaping exercises. We'll prepare everybody. They all come in, and then we get sickle, and we reap everybody. I'm like, this is just... It could be so interpreted wrong. Uh, And so I think we really need to work through that language on this and try to make sure that we can actually do, do the changes. But the change that takes place with God is daily. You may give your life to Jesus, but every day you've got to change. If you come to the point where you feel like, I feel really comfortable with God, there's nothing new to learn, I don't need any more transformation, you can translate me, you know that you need God even more. So, it is supposed to be standard operating procedure, and it is supposed to take place every time, and it is huge. And believe me, final point here on this is that it's not actually anything to do with the past. People will often say, oh, but in the good old days, that's when church was great. And if by good old days, you mean when Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin, yes, but after that, no. There is no such thing as the great past. It is only the present and the future. And God is not calling us to go back to a sinful state that was in the past. We have learned more. Every generation learns more from the other generation. We sit on the shoulders of great people who have sacrificed hours and days and years of their life to understand the character of God and have written it down so that we may distill this information, put it together, and be followers of God. And we get it so much better. And God's saying, the past is not where it is. It is the future inside there, which brings us to our third question, which is the hard question that some people will wrestle with, and elders will as well. Creating metrics. What? Because, you know, the truth is this, is that there are some churches that use the ABC of deciding what a church is when it's doing good or not doing good. Attendance, baptism, and cash. That's what it is. Attendance, baptism, and cash. If you have the ABCs, if you have people attending church, if you have baptisms taking place, if you have cash in the bank, church is fantastic. And we love those metrics. And you know, it's not a bad sign. I mean, really, in principle, if you can count it, you should count it, right? And we do like that. I mean, if you stop giving your tithes and offerings, I'd be fired. Huh. Don't stop. See, I want you to continue giving. It's not a problem with that. We love to count. In fact, actually, I mean, Twitter. Twitter loves it. Twitter loves it, and they say, yeah, we count. We count everybody who likes us, everybody who retweets us. We like that. Facebook, yeah. We count that, that's how we know it. Stock market, we count that, that's how we know it. Ralph Lauren, we count that, that's how we know it. Apple computers, we count how many products we sell, that's how we know it. Does God live by that same standard? Does he have that same metric? Is he saying, how many circumcised people do I have in my church? I mean, today he'd probably say, how many baptized people do I have in my church? Is that where God is saying he's satisfied, the church is doing well? If everybody's sitting inside the sanctuary on Sabbath morning, is church going well? Well, if somebody comes along, finds an encounter with Jesus, and decides to join a local tribe called the Baptist, is that 1-0 or 0-1 to God? If somebody comes along and discovers Jesus Christ, and then after a while... They decide to join another Seventh day Adventist church 13 yards away. Is that one zero or zero one to God? Is God caring about which church we're going to? Does He care whether you're going to another church down the road or this one here? These are metrics that we need to wrestle through. Is it a win for God? We love to count things. I mean, look. We will count other religions. We'll say, how many Buddhists are there? Well, not that many, 300 million. How many Hindus? Oh, not that many, 380 million. How many Muslims are there? Oh, 1.2 billion. That's okay. But there are 2.4 billion Christians. Wow, we must be really good. Because numbers are what make us decide that things are going well. Which is exactly why we love Napoleon and Mussolini and Hitler. Because they were very successful. In fact, actually, Hitler was a great preacher. You ever read any of Hitler's speeches? Phenomenal stuff. He got up one day in front of these tens of thousands of people. He wore this long trench coat on, soldiers, foot soldiers, trench coat on. He said, We are the people together. You see this coat? I'm not a great leader. I am like you, and I will wear this coat till we win, till we take over and make everybody feel great because Germans are great people. Forgive the two Germans in church. Germans are great people, right? That's what he's saying. And everybody thought that's fantastic because we do follow great sermons, we do follow great speeches. We marvel after somebody else who's able to articulate something that brings us to a place. That's what we want to be able to do. The difficulty is, is that we love our egos to be stroked. We love to feel bad, but we like to feel kind of good. We like to feel good that we're feeling bad, and then we realize it and we're moving forward. We're kind of deceiving ourselves into this plane, because the big point is this. We are all broken human beings. All of us. Jared, when you stood up and you shared this morning what you felt from moving from this spot to this spot here. It's something I do every single week. Whenever I preach, whenever I come to church on Sabbath morning, it's one of the things that I do in the morning. I say, God, for all the things that I've done wrong this week, take it away. Forgive me of all my sins. Clear my heart of the anger or dissatisfaction against things that are going on and put me in a place with you. It's what we do every single morning. It's what we do when we had a fight with our kids about 30 seconds afterwards. It's what we do all the time because we're constantly having to remember that we are broken human beings. And unfortunately, church is supposed to remind you of that. So if you come to church and you're not confronted by the gospel, and you're not confronted in your Bible study class, and you're not confronted in a conversation, if you're just like, man, wasn't church good today? I laughed a little bit sang a little bit, tickled a little bit, wept a little bit, and I went home, and nothing changed. You have not experienced the transformation of God in your life, and we as a church need to measure that, and that's really difficult to measure. Because numbers always exist. You know, I report every week. I got an email this week from Craig Carr, the ministerial director of Rocky Mountain Conference, saying send me the numbers of attendance of how many people are attending church every week. And we have to take records of everybody attending because we want to report it to the system. The tail needs to understand how many people are coming to church. And that's how they measure success. That's their metric. They say it's a tithe and offerings. Actually, they say it's a tithe and attendance. Those are the two things that they're worried about inside there. And so we have to report that stuff. And I love that. I love it when I go to the one project and we sell out. It's fantastic when you sell out. It's fantastic when you run the create conference and instead of 75, 170 people come up. It's fantastic when more people come. And honestly, when church here, you guys attend and you come to church and you listen to the message, I'm kind of excited when you turn up. I am. I am. I don't know about you. I'm kind of like, what are you doing over there at the refreshment table? Church started five minutes ago. Come inside. Come inside. I love it. I love it. And, I, and, and it's very hard to resist the good feeling that happens when you're connecting to people because that's a great place to be. But on its own, it is not the healthiest metric. Two Wednesdays ago, a fortnight ago, I was sitting down in Seattle with a, a doctor of ministry cohort. They wanted me to talk to them about some stuff and so I was discussing some ideas with them and they're getting ready for their, their, their doctorate in defense at some point. And uh, I asked them, you know, what they use for metrics in their church. And one guy said to me, you know, uh, I have two young people who stayed in my church. They didn't leave. I can't call my conference and say, they stayed. <laughs> That's not a metric success. But for me, because I know that they were on the verge of leaving, it's huge success. It's healthy. I had another pastor tell me, well, in this country, um, not saying Ghana, but in that country, if a pastor baptizes a certain amount of people, they get vacation. They get a suit. When I was in Peru, they told me they go down the Amazon River, Paddle, 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 baptize 400 people. Paddle, 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 come back, report to their office. Here's a bonus, here's a promotion, here's a suit, here's some vacation. They paddle, 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 another 400 people. Don't remember they're the same 400, but we did it. The numbers are inflated out of control because there's an intense amount of pressure. When I was a child, and maybe you grew up in churches like this, did you ever have that moment in between the, the service and, and uh, sorry, it was usually Sabbath school first, the so Bible study and service, and somebody would get up church and say, now, how many of you delivered voice of prophecy cards in the community? And you'd have to put your hands up. How many of you gave a Bible study this week? And then you realized after years going by that less and less hands were going up. And it was the time of just like dire awkwardness. Oh, man, please. But there was always one person in the church who did everything. Because he had no life, no anticipation of anything else. And he'd just be up, up, up the whole time. I mean, that's all he did all day long. And that's what he enjoyed. And so we started to move that away because it was difficult for us to judge and to accept and understand whether this was a healthy metric or not. But this is the difficulty that we face. We want to know how to decide whether church is doing well or not. And it's very easy to look at numbers. But actually, God is saying, I need you to look at some other factors as well. I need you to remember that there's other things that are important with this. It's the same for me, you know. uh, There are some things that I really enjoy doing at church. Administration and systems and planning and all that kind of stuff. So I revert back to things that I'm very comfortable with. Things that are difficult for me, uh, really hard for me to do. I don't do that often. But when it comes to organization structure, I love that. So hence, the elders, next time we meet Peter, you know, we're going to talk about whether our structure right now is growing us or hindering us from being a healthy church. And healthy, it's very hard to define. Because what's a healthy church look like? You know, it is very difficult for us to understand all the time. Jesus himself, he had uh, 12 disciples, right? But he only focused on three of them the three that he had close to him. And we are constantly saying to ourselves, well, we've got to make sure that people are healthy, that they're growing. So we're going to have a faith forum here. We're going to bring Lawrence Turner over. We're going to try and encourage this kind of stuff to take place. We want to be able to even build bridges with other churches. I talked to Todd Stout. He's out in New York, uh, and uh, we're going to partner his church and our church, and we're going to build a network of churches that actually really want to look at what it is to be healthy. Can we learn from each other? Because we do. This church, this dog, this dog influences other dogs, and the tail wags all over the place, encouraging us to do things, but we are doing this. The things that we do here affect the entire global world as well. Eliah writes a song that we practice here and we prepare here in this community with the real people, and then we take it to one project, and they take it out to tons of other churches. Our youth pastor, which by the way, we are four or five weeks away from having a youth pastor here. We are very close to that, which is, which is phenomenal. Our youth pastor, whoever that youth pastor is going to end up becoming, they're going to lead generation one. They're going to lead it globally and locally here. They're going to make sure that youth ministry grows here, learns what it is in the real world. That's what we do in church. We stay connected to the real people to understand what's going on, to be able to affect the entire thing going on all over the place. But even so, when church is really hard, there are times when you just get hammered down, right? But people just say things to each other, that are offensive, people say things that they don't mean to say, people are having a really bad day, and they come to church, and they take it out on you, and they didn't mean to take it out on you, but it feels real personal and painful to you, so it's overwhelming with that, but there are so many good people in church that help you out, you know, that for me, there are people in this church that I've connected to closer than others, Tom and Sherry Eichmann, Jan and Gordy Gates, Diane and Mark Johnson. Peter and Patty Chamberlain, who've invested in my family, who've spent time with my kids, who understand what it is. I value deep friendships. I value people who've reached out to do things. I value that I get to reach out as well. I can't be best friends with every single person in the entire world, so I usually pick people taller. We pick people, we pick each other. We do. We do because we value that. And that takes us through all sorts of difficult things. And so it brings us to our fourth question which is why we create churches and often we will say what? Community. Right? Check. That's why we go to church. That's why we have church. Because we have great community. And I love community. So I'm not offended with that. Some of us say friendship. I love friendship. Some of us say women. That's why I go to church. Because of the women. And a few men said amen. Men, because there are great men at the church. And a few women said, amen. Blessings that take place. Food. Did I say food? Food at church. It's a good thing. Leadership, development, and our chances to be able to. These are all great reasons why we have church. But we still have people at Bunny Hop Church all the time. It's like they're in the marriage, but they're not in the marriage. They're committed but they're not committed. And they struggle through this over and over and over again, because it's difficult for them to be able to understand what it is that God has called them to. Has God called them to a metric, a metric that says, hey, church is about being with family and friends, and that's what it comes down to? Or is there something else inside the Bible, which I found in 1 Corinthians 12, that maybe is a little bit more difficult for us to remember and to understand? So if you have your Bibles, and they're in your pews, If you don't have one, page 663, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you want, you can take those Bibles with you, you can write in them, you can actually share them with someone else, and you can have them yourself, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a great passage, and when people read this passage, and you've probably read this passage many times, when people read this passage, often they'll think, oh, this is about gifts. It is, but not only gifts. Or this is about everybody having a role in the church. It is, but not only about that. This is the place where we get the term members, right? You you ever wanted to know what we call them partners and we call them members of this church here, but this is where we got members from, chapter 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members. So people become members of the church. That's what we do. We do need to look at what membership means, we as a church need to do this. The dog needs to do this. Because we have kind of created a picture of membership that basically means you are ready for translation. You are ready to jump next to that chariot with Elijah and God. Now you are a member. And then when you're a member, you've got to stay in that translation state forever. You sin at all, <gasps> let's take you off from membership. And so membership has become some kind of weird de facto thing. So hence, at our church here in Boulder, we call you partners. We do have members. By the way, we need to have members because we don't have members. We get in trouble and I get fired. But we have partners. Everybody here who comes to this church, understanding the mission and vision of this church, which is a dissatisfaction with the present, that God will take us where he needs to take us, is a partner with the mission and vision of this church here. So it says in chapter 12 here, that Paul takes us into a much deeper level. First of all, he's rethinking of Genesis 1 and 2. You've got to remember this. He's a Jew. He understands the First Testament really well. He's thinking that God created in and through Jesus human beings. And human beings are the best example of creativity. And the church is a place to be human. That's what church is. A place for us to be human, a place for us to be broken, a place for us to be who we are, creative beings. Number two is that he uses the term here. He says here in verse 12, uh, for just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body which there are many one, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say Jesus; he says Christ, Messiah, because he's using the term Messiah to say this is the hope of the world. When David went against Goliath, he represented Israel. When we exist as a church, we represent God against all the evil in the world. And number three, he uses a metaphor. There's that word again: a metaphor. People sometimes spend too much time on the metaphor and misunderstand the message behind it. But he spends time using this metaphor. He says, look, you know, the emperor says that he is the head. And all of you, taxpayers, you are the members. You are the body parts. But he says, no, it's different. Because this is what happens in verse 12. And when you read this, you're going to think it should read it this way. For just... Read it with me. Just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the church. But it doesn't say with the church. In your Bible, it should say, so it is with the Christ, with the Messiah. And here's the clincher. Galatians chapter 316, it's uh, page 672, just a couple of pages over. We're going to do a whole series in Galatians in a few weeks' time, but Galatians chapter 316. You know, you remember verses John 316, remember Galatians 316. This is a powerful verse. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The church is Christ. I know it's difficult for us because we think we're the church. But we are not the church. The church is Christ. Now to belong to Christ, to be in Christ, means you need to get baptized. And I know there's some of you here who have not been baptized yet. And that's what that connect card is inside your worship guide is. Rip it off, put your name down and say, I have no idea why I'm not baptized. I wanna understand why I'm not baptized. Put it inside there, connect to any of the elders or the pastors, and we will start you through the process to understand what it is to be connected to Christ, because it is through baptism that you've done this. Then Paul says, there's a whole bunch of responsibility you have, and everybody gets excited about the roles, and we start to categorize all the roles, but Paul intentionally, through the entire Second Testament, changes the order of the roles every time he mentions them. He's messing with you. He's trying to say, don't think this is better than this one here. They're all important, as Jackie said in her children's story. Every part is important, and we're all supposed to be part of that. And nobody's greater than that. So the church is not a place for you to use your gifts. It often is advertised that way. Come, let's find out what your talent is. Let's plug you into that place, because that's one of the easiest ways to get people excited about it. But if you truly understand that you are a broken human being, And sometimes you don't, and so it doesn't make sense entirely. But when you understand you're a broken human being, you come to church with the request from God to re-transform you every time, to wash you with the Holy Spirit and say, God, I cannot do this without you. Some of you walk into art galleries, and you'll see a painting on the wall, and you'll say to yourself, I could have painted that. What stopped you? Somebody need to come and put a brush in your hand and hold your hand? Somebody need to mix the palette together and go to Michael's and buy the canvas? Somebody goes to a restaurant and they sit down and they bring the food out to you and you're eating it and thinking, I have paid $20 for this. Man, I could have cooked this. What stopped you? Did you have to go into the kitchen and somebody carry you in the kitchen and say, this is a salt shaker and this is pepper and this is the pastor and this is how you make it? Some of you come to church and you listen to a sermon and you think, could have done that. What stopped you? Somebody need to pick you up, make you open the Bible, read it, try to understand it, make you write it, maybe even hold your hand as they put every little word down on Sunday or type it out? Some of you come to church thinking to yourself, God, I need you. And those are the people that are actually saying, nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be part of what God has called us to because the church is Christ and I belong to him.